So if you had $5 in your pocket before and now you don't, we trust the people in this church. And uh, I think we do. Even the Crow supporters, John. Um, so, yeah, if, if, you, uh, if you've lost it, it is found. And you can uh, come and claim it. I want to start off saying thank you to Eliza and Amy who've been uh, busy organising and, and setting up these palm leaves behind me and around the church. It's just that wonderful little visual reminder that today is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we remember the events of that Sunday before Easter. Now, we know why Easter is important. Uh, every year we, we have big Easter services and even in most of my sermons, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus appears in there somewhere or other because it is at the heart of who we are as his people and what God has done for us. But why does it matter how Jesus came to Jerusalem a week before? Why do all four of the Gospels record Jesus coming to Jerusalem uh, on the cult of a donkey? To, to be... Um, like. To, when we, when we look at the four Gospels, there's quite a lot of things that aren't in all four Gospels. John, John's Gospel was written quite a lot later than a lot of the others, and he decided he didn't need to double up and tell everybody the same stories they'd already heard, so he uh, included some different parts of the life of Jesus. But on the key points, he still tells the same stories that the other do. So they all thought that it was important that Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey on that Sunday before the cross. Why did he do that? Why did it bring such a huge reaction from the crowds who cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, and from the Pharisees who, told, who looked and said, the whole world is going after him. We have to do something about this. To make sense of what Jesus was doing that Sunday, we're going to have a look today back in the Old Testament at the book of Zechariah the prophet, reading from Zechariah chapter 9 verses 8 to 17. <clears throat> but I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. 
I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. That's Zechariah's prophecy of the king coming to Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. Now just a little background, Zechariah was a prophet in the period after Israel had been in exile. So God brought Israel to the land from Egypt. They lived there for some hundreds of years. Uh, the, the land was split between Judah and Israel. And then Israel were taken off uh, and obliterated by the Assyrians. And then a hundred or so years later, uh, the kingdom of Judah was defeated by the Babylonians and taken off into exile. And at the point where these prophets are writing, the uh, kingdom of Babylon was defeated by the Persians and the Persians passed an order allowing the, uh, the people to go back to their original lands. And so the people of Judah could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city which had lain in ruins and rebuild the temple. And that was where uh, we did last year, we had a bit of a look at the book of Haggai, who was one of these prophets after the exile, uh, and his his big thing was encouraging the uh, the people of Judah. All right, you've rebuilt your houses. Now it's time to rebuild the temple. It's time to put God first in our kingdom, in our community. Zechariah comes along at a similar time, and a lot of the first part of his the first eight chapters of his book are on those sort of themes, on rebuilding the temple, uh, on renewing their covenant with God and rebuilding the priesthood that served at the temple so that once again they could be God's people and he could be their God living in the land that he had given to them. And then in chapters 9 to 14, the, the tone of the book changes a little and it becomes this we often talk about prophecy as though prophecy is always about the future. And what we look at when we see these prophets is that a lot of it was about the right now. This is what we, this is what we need to do to be faithful to the covenant. But this chapters 9 to 14 is then very much focused on that prophetic word, that, that word about the future. And it's full of what they call apocalyptic literature, which is... Uh, basically the book of Revelation, you know, all of that highly symbolic writing. So Zechariah, from God, gives this promise to the people, particularly concerned with the future, and he adds great significance to the coming of a king, this king who is going to come, who is clearly 
the Messiah. Now, the people Zechariah is speaking to have been into exile and they've seen the line of kings ended. So, David was the king. David was one of, one of the earlier kings of, of Israel. Um, and after him, his sons ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah. And that line was not broken over those hundreds of years. And God had made a promise to David uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, among other places, that his son would sit on the throne forever. And there was, there was a number of promises around this promised son who would be anointed as the kings were, so he was the anointed one, which was this word Messiah, also known as the Christ. And yet, these people have come back from exile and there is no king. There is no son of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. They're, they sort of have their own governor, but they're a puppet state under the power of the Persian Empire. And yet, so what Zechariah's prophecy here in chapter 9 is saying to the people is that God has not forgotten his promises. God has not forgotten what he said he will do. The king, the son of David, will still come and God will send them the king that they've always been waiting for and that's a that's a huge part of what the uh, the prophetic the prophetic books of the Old Testament and what Jesus himself came to teach us was that God always keeps his promises his timing may not be like ours and he may not do things in the times that we wish that he would do them. But God always keeps his promises. Even though the people of Judah had been unfaithful and they'd gone after other gods and been sent off into exile as a result, God was still faithful to his promises. He would restore them. He would bring them back. And he would do all that he had promised to do. Likewise, we can trust, no matter what we go through, that God will always keep his promises. The return of Jesus. Eternal life. The, uh, the kingdom of God. We can trust the things that he has promised us. Because he always keeps his promises. So Zechariah calls the people of Jerusalem to rejoice for their king is coming. The king is coming righteous, which is not just a trait that he's a, a nice guy, but this idea, righteousness when attributed to the kings, is this idea of continuing to rule justly and with faith in God. The king is coming victorious, triumphant having salvation, depending on which version you read it in. The king is coming to bring a great victory for his people. And this is a promise to a people who were surrounded by hostile nations, who were subjected to a foreign power. 
and Zechariah gives them the promise of a king who will bring victory. And then we skip ahead a few hundred years. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for what he knows will be the climactic time, the time where he is going to be killed on a cross, to have God's wrath poured out on him as the sins of the world are placed upon him. And he will rise again from the dead. He knew all of that long before he set out for Jerusalem and we looked at that last week. That he didn't come to Jerusalem expecting everybody was going to welcome him with open arms. He came expecting the cross. And as Jesus reaches the sort of the, the towns just before Jerusalem, just a few k's out of Jerusalem, he tells the disciples, this is what you're going to go and do. You're going to go ahead, you're going to find a cult that has never been ridden. And you're going, you know, it's going to be, you'll recognise it when you see you know, when you see it tied up there, ready to go. And if the people ask you why you're taking this cult, you tell them that the master has need of it and they will understand what all this is about. Whether he'd set that up beforehand or whether that was a spirit-led thing. But Jesus had this plan and Jesus very deliberately sent the disciples to bring him this cult. And Jesus did that because he knew his Old Testament. And he knew about Zechariah chapter 9. And he knew that if he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, on on a cult, he would be proclaiming to all of the people, I am this king. This king that you've been waiting for since David. This king that was promised to you by Zechariah. I am your king is what Jesus says as he rides to Jerusalem on that donkey. It was a very deliberate action. It wasn't just a coincidence. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus had shied away from the label of being the Messiah. We saw that last week when the disciples figured out he was the Messiah, he told them to tell nobody. But now that he was coming near the cross. Now that he knew the uproar that would be started by his taking this title of Messiah would reach the end of him being put on that cross. It was time to acknowledge, yes, I am the Messiah, the king that you've been waiting for. And that's why the crowds and the Pharisees responded as they did because they were responding to his claim that here he is, the king, who comes righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's come to bring a great victory. And yet that victory looked nothing like what the people were expecting. That victory looked like a painful and humiliating death on a cross where sin was dealt with and Satan defeated. And it looked like the rising of Jesus from the dead where death 
was defeated. And a great victory was won for everybody who is in Jesus. And now we who are surrounded on every side by enemies, not in the same sense that they were in the Old Testament where they didn't get along with the nations around them, but in the sense that our world is full of the works of the enemy. You go around, you watch the news, you see the works of the enemy. You look at the billboards up in parts of the city and you see the works of the enemy. You can't go very far in this world without seeing the works of the enemy. And yet to those who are surrounded by the enemy, Jesus promises a great victory that sin, that death, that Satan himself are already crippled by the victory that he has won so that we can trust that when he promises that they will be ultimately defeated, we know that it will happen because of the victory he already won for us at the cross. Jesus came on a donkey to say, I am this king that you have been waiting for that brings you victory. But more than that, we see that he said that that wasn't all that was in this prophecy. This wasn't all that was in these words that Zechariah had written about this king who would come. But Jesus was proclaiming to be all the parts of this prophecy. And Jesus came to say, I bring you peace. Which raises the question, if Jesus is the king that was prophesied, and that's the question we all face as we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, we have that question to wrestle with. The people saw him proclaiming to be the king and they got out their palm branches and they welcomed him gladly. The Pharisees saw him proclaiming to be king and they were figuring out how they could get rid of him. We need to figure out how we respond to Jesus' claim to be our king. But if we believe he is our king, if Jesus is the king that was prophesied, why wasn't the rest of this prophecy fulfilled? Zechariah prophesied that when the king came, there would be great peace. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now war might be done with different things these days than chariots and war horses and bows. But have the weapons of war been removed from Jerusalem and from Ephraim, the northern part, the kingdom of Israel, the modern day Golan Heights? Not a day goes by without conflict somewhere in our world. And especially in the Middle East, in these lands that were written about in this prophecy. We see the people of Judah had faced the consequences of defeat in battle, of going off in an exile. And 
in this prophecy, we see that the coming of the king is tied to peace, not just for Israel, but for the nations. He comes to proclaim peace to the nations. It's tied to the rescue of prisoners, of people being brought out of the waterless pit. It's tied to this picture that the king will reign over the whole of the promised land, not just the kingdom of Judah, which was beginning to be restored, but even the land of Ephraim, which hadn't been a kingdom for about 200 years now, and most of the people of the northern kingdom had been dispersed throughout the Assyrian lands. It shows the king ruling over all of this land, from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And God promises all of this because of the blood of the covenant, the covenant that they had made with him on Sinai, when God had promised, if you make this covenant with me, I will be your God and you will be my people. The blood of the covenant also points us on to Jesus, who came to Jerusalem to pour out the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But although Jesus brought a great victory over death and hell, and that is, that is what he did at Easter, there is still not peace on the earth. And there is not peace with our enemy, even though he has, has lost a great, a great battle, though his power is significantly weakened. We do not have peace with the enemy. So how do we understand this? How do we make sense of Jesus being this king if he hasn't done all of the things that the prophecy says that he will do? The answer is, and I've used this phrase a number of times, the now and the not yet. When the prophets of the Old Testament looked forward to Jesus, all of that was in the future. Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming were all, in, from their perspective, they were looking ahead and they see a range of mountains ahead and they all appear to be, you know, at the same sort of, the same tier. And so this and this and this and this will happen as they look ahead and they see the future. But we live in a time where that first range of mountains is behind us and the second range is ahead. And we can see there's actually a fair bit to happen between part one and part two, between Jesus coming once and Jesus coming again. All of it's forward for Zechariah, but for, for us, we can see that some of this has happened but some of it is yet to come. But the fact is that Jesus has come to fulfill these things in part so that we can trust that the rest will be done in full. It reminds us that peace is God's will, that when he made this world and it was good, there was no warfare between the people he had created. They were made for perfect relationship with one another and perfect relationship with God. And when God makes all things new, when we come to the new creation, when Jesus returns, there will be no more war between people. 
there will be no more broken relationships between those whom God has redeemed. There will be peace. Peace between us and God. Peace that we don't deserve because we had rejected him, but peace that has been won by Jesus' blood. And peace between each other. Again, because of what Jesus has done to take away the offence of sin between us. There can be no peace while sin exists. Sin causes conflict. Sin causes wars. It's, what can, it's the result of rejecting God's will. But Jesus has dealt with sin. The punishment or the penalty for sin has been paid once for all at the cross. And so now as God's chosen people, we do our part to bring peace. We all sorts of parts. I, I probably should have put some up on the screen. But there's a number of parts in the letters that Paul writes to the churches to say, as far as it is in your power, have peace with those around you. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peace is God's will and we do our part to bring peace in this world. Although we recognise there won't be perfect peace as long as sin exists. And we trust that one day we will have the peace that God has promised to us. Which brings us finally to the last thing that we see in Zechariah's prophecy. And again, this is, we saw Jesus has come riding on the donkey, come righteous and victorious. But the rest of the prophecy hasn't come to, part and come to pass in this this last part is also in that category. The Lord Yahweh himself will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet and he will march in the storms of the south and Yahweh Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. Yahweh their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and, and new wine the women. We see in Zechariah's prophecy related to the coming of the king is the coming of God himself in power to his people. And again, as I noted, that's a picture of what Jesus has begun but has not yet fully been realised. In Jesus, God did come and dwell among his people because Jesus was more than just a son of David, more than just a king, but he was God the Son the second person of the Trinity. But there is, an, there is also a future fulfilment to this in which God himself will one day appear to his people. He will live among them and he will be their God, our God, and we will be his people. 
And we see this picture of God appearing in power, and it's a bit... It's a lot like the pictures we see in the end of Revelation of God coming in judgment and in glory to make all things new. And Yahweh will save them. Yahweh will save us on that day as a shepherd saves his flock because we've followed the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. As Jesus headed to the cross, as he rode that donkey into Jerusalem, he was proclaiming this part of the prophecy also. I bring you to God. I restore relationship between you and God so that God can be your God and you can be his people. Through through his death in our place, he has removed the sin that stood between us and God that meant that people could come no closer to God than the outer courtyard of the temple because if they went any further, their sin would require that they be put to death. Through his resurrection, Jesus has made a way through death that we might be with God. And on that day, we the redeemed will be the jewels in his crown. We will be his pride and joy the apple of his eye, we will be what he delights in. And we can be with him forever, thriving on grain and new wine, that picture that it ends with, that picture of just fullness, of having every good thing that God gives to his people. That picture of rain in season as it starts in the next chapter, that picture of how attractive and beautiful they will be, that picture of the restoration of us to be what God had made us to be before sin and brokenness entered our world. We can be with him in all the goodness of his creation without the pain of sin and brokenness. And as Jesus rode towards Jerusalem on that donkey, he was proclaiming all of this, all of these promises. The coming of your king who will be righteous and who will bring justice. The coming of your king who will bring peace between the nations and destroy the weapons of war. And the coming of God himself to be among his people. All of these promises... Jesus says, I've come to bring them to you. Zechariah shared this promise to give his people hope that God had not forgotten. And now, many, many years later, a long time since Jesus first came, he tells us the same, that there is hope that God will keep his promises because he always has. And what Jesus has begun at Easter, he will finish when he comes again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant Zechariah, who you led to share these promises with us, so that when Jesus came, we might know who he was and who he proclaimed himself to be. 
We thank you, Jesus, that as you came resolutely towards the cross where you would face the punishment for all of our sins, you came proclaiming, here I am, I am your king, that I will bring you peace and restoration of relationship with God for all who will be my people, for all who will follow me. May we all give our allegiance to you, Lord Jesus. May we all follow you faithfully, putting our hope that what you have begun, you will finish. That we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.